if you harbor these ideas of retiring early, start what you think you're going to do after retirement before retirement. Because that gives you an opportunity just to see where all these pieces fall and to make sure you actually like what you're going to do while you still have your full-time job. So you have the ability to change things up a little bit while you still have that income. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Steve Adcock. Steve and his wife built a net worth of over 900k when they decided they were going to quit their jobs and live a free life. In this episode, you'll learn what you need to do to create more freedom in your life. You'll also learn how to build a big Twitter account by being smart about how you spend your time on Twitter and what you tweet about. My name is Yannick, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. What made you move to the middle of the desert in Arizona? And uh, yeah, what do we need to know? Well, I am a 39-year-old dude who uh, retired early with my wife in our mid-30s from an IT career. So we saved up a bunch of money and then we just quit our jobs because frankly, we didn't like working for other people. And I think a lot of people can wrap their head around that concept. You'd rather be doing your own thing. And one of the things that we wanted to do is minimize our lifestyle to the point where we simply didn't need a lot of money to live. And therefore, we don't need to maintain a full-time job in order to live that life. And that's really what brought us out here to the middle of the Arizona desert in an off-grid house, living a very sustainable lifestyle. We don't like grow our own food or anything like that. We're not quite to that level yet, but we do have an on-site solar system. So we provide all of our power ourselves. We like to call it our off-grid recession-proof house. When everything does hit the fan, and it will eventually, nobody knows when, but it will, we can live so minimally here. I mean, right now, everything is great. Everybody's making money. It's hard not to be making money. But it's not always going to be that way. So when that does happen, we can really minimize our lifestyle and have zero utility bills month to month and just live a very satisfying life, even though we may not have all the luxuries and the niceties. Quite frankly, we had that in a previous life. We kind of got that out, out of our system. And now we're just um, living large on a big piece of property, but without a lot of, I don't know, luxuries, I guess. I think a lot of people um, envy you or would like to have you know, a similar lifestyle where they don't need to earn a lot of money and still get to live a decent life. Let's back up a little bit. So you said uh, you and your wife are in IT. So how did you wind up in there? How did you create the buffer you're now living off? How did you, you know, save a lot of money? Well, in IT, in technology jobs in general, you tend to make a good amount of money. And with that money, you can do one of two things. You can live like a rock star. You could have the big house and the nice cars and the you know $1,000 suits or whatever. I don't even know if that's expensive for suits. I, I, I don't really wear suits. I've never have. So I don't know if that's expensive. But to me, that sounds expensive. So you can have the lifestyle where you look like you're rich. And quite frankly, I did that for many years. I had the Corvette. I had the motorcycle. I had the brand new Cadillac. I did all that. I, I, I lived the house in the suburbs and all that good stuff. So you can do that with all of that money, or you can put that money to your future and build a more financially independent lifestyle. And for me, obviously, that's what I did in my late 20s and early 30s. I started to come around to this realization that, yeah, I'm making good money in IT, but I really don't like my job. I don't get any satisfaction from working a full-time job. So I need to make 
a change. And then I met my wife, who was also in IT. So we had two relatively good salaries coming together. And for many years after marriage, we combined both of our salaries and we lived on 30%. So therefore, we saved 70%, 70% of two good IT salaries. And when you do that, that money adds up super, super quickly. You really do have to back off your lifestyle and make these changes that might be uncomfortable. But man, that money adds up fast when you're making so much of it. You probably know Mr. Money Mustache. Oh, yeah. He was my first, I guess he opened my eyes to the possibility that this was possible because he came from a very similar background as me. He was a software developer just like I was. I don't think his wife worked or if, if she did, she certainly wasn't in IT. But he I just connected with and the language he used on his blog was very like informal and he cussed sometimes. And that's just what I relate to. So he and I, we had this remote connection and that was my first realization, I guess, that, well, if he can do it, I can certainly do it because I not only have one IT salary, but we have two. So there's nothing that would stop us from making this possible. And was he the catalyst for you to get started on your, you know, your path to independence? I guess in a way he was. Um, but right after college, my dad told me that some people are on the 10-year plan, which effectively means you live like a college student for 10 years and then do whatever you want after that. So that was the very first seed that was planted in my head right after college. But at that point, I was a college student making no money, and I wanted to make and spend. Early retirement was really not in the cards for me because I wanted to live like I saw everybody else live and drive the 7 Series BMW and live in the nice house and buy you know wh whatever I wanted. So I wanted those things because I never got to do that. And I wanted to experience what that was like, and I thought that was going to make me happy and successful and all that good stuff. But you know, I mean, long story short, that was my first seed that never really grew, but it was always in there. It was always in the back of my head until I started following Mr. Money Mustache and some of the other personal finance bloggers where I really started to put the pieces into place and that seed grew into something much, much bigger. And I realized this is way more possible than I initially thought, coupled with not being all that satisfied with a high paying job. Those pieces fell into place pretty quickly for me, I would say. Let's unpack a little bit. So you, you started lowering your expenses, investing. Can you run us through what you did? Maybe even numbers, how much money you put into different uh, things? Yeah. So combined, my wife and I were probably making in the neighborhood of $250,000 a year combined. We maxed out our 401ks at work, which reduced our taxable income. Even though that money is taxed later in life, you pay less taxes now. So that's a really good tax-advantaged way to save for retirement. We maxed out our Roth IRAs, which is a post-tax account. So you pay taxes now, but you don't pay taxes later. All that money grows tax-free. Um, so we maxed that out as well. And then we opened another brokerage account through Vanguard. We like targeted retirement retirement accounts. We don't pick and choose stocks and companies to invest in. Quite frankly, I find investment boring. Investing is incredibly boring and I don't want to pick and choose companies because quite frankly, I'm not smart enough to do that. So this targeted retirement concept is a perfect auto-diversified way for people to make money easily in the market. All you got to do is keep contributing into your brokerage account. That's really 
all it takes. So we put all these pieces into place with investing the large majority of our income, saving some for emergencies and things like that, and just living off of a really a small fraction of what we made, which was about 40000 40000 to $45,000 a year. Is what we actually lived on. So that's gas for our cars, that's our food, that's our rent, our utilities, all that was about $40,000 a year. And we saved the rest of the $210,000. Obviously, there's taxes that come out of that, but I'm just trying to make the math easy. That's what we did to build our wealth as quickly as possible. And so you did that for quite a few years. And did you also invest in like dividend paying stocks so you could live off the cash flow of your investments? Yeah, we don't do a lot of debt. We have some dividend stocks, but we are not dividend investors. A lot of people have really good luck with that, and that's fine. But we simply don't do that. So for us, when we have to, we sell a little bit of our stocks as they go up to live off of. But one of the most surprising things that I've found in early retirement, and I use that term loosely because I'm not just sitting around here doing nothing, but that's kind of the point I'm trying to talk about here. The ability to make money after you quit your full-time job is remarkable. I found that if you have a marketable skill, people are always going to be looking for that work. I've turned down more money-making opportunities after I quit than I ever got when I was working a full-time job. Being financially independent and not having to work means you can pick and choose between the opportunities that sound interesting to you. So we have a YouTube channel. I write sometimes. Those little things bring in, I don't know, maybe $1,000, $1,500 a month. When you live out here in the middle of nowhere, that money goes a long way. So we found that we don't really have to sell as much stock to maintain our lifestyle nearly as much as we thought we were going to because it's so darn easy to make money doing things that you enjoy after quitting your full-time job. You say for a decade, when was the point you said and and you and your wife said, okay, we've got a a decent chunk of change right now. We're going to quit our jobs and find a place somewhere else. When I quit my job, we had just under $900,000 in net worth at that point. And most people would take a look at that and go, wow, less than a million dollars and you're retiring? That's absolutely crazy. I think history has been very good to us because obviously we're still around. We're still not working. It was fine. And I think one of the things that enabled us to make that call when we did was because my wife initially took a sabbatical. So she was going to go back to work for another six months and then we would retire again. So that's another half year salary that she was going to bring in. Um, But we also sold everything we owned. We bought an Airstream RV and we traveled the country full time for three years, which is another great way to minimize your expenses as long as you don't stay in these really expensive campgrounds every single night. But we certainly didn't do that. We were comfortable retiring with our net worth that we had because we had such a minimal, inexpensive lifestyle. And we had so, so much fun doing that. You can be incredibly happy and do these really fun things, but you just have to give it some forethought and be and understand what is going to make you happy before you actually do that. Because there's a lot of things that you think are going to be fun after retirement that don't end up being all that great. So being honest with yourself, I think, is a very important element in this equation. And so after three years of travel, you settled down in Arizona? 
Yeah. After three years, we settled down. We bought a little off-grid house here and it's been absolutely perfect for us. We still have the Airstream. We haven't traveled lately because of all the coronavirus nonsense, but we are this year going to take a couple of trips in it. In fact, just this weekend, we might go into Tucson and do a little exploring there because we used to live there for 10 years before we quit and traveled. So We're still traveling here and there, but we're certainly not traveling full-time. We love it here. We're doing lots of work to the house. We're making it our own. It's just been a great time for us. What was the moment you started to make money again outside your IT um, career? Really, I started that before I even quit, before I retired. I think for me, that's an important element in this whole equation. If you harbor these ideas of retiring early, start what you think you're going to do after retirement before retirement, because that gives you an opportunity just to see where all these pieces fall and to make sure you actually like what you're going to do while you still have your full-time job. So you have the ability to change things up a little bit while you still have that income. So I was doing lots of blogging. I was making some money on the side before I even quit. So when I did quit my job, I was still had that money rolling in to, to some degree. It wasn't like a huge amount. Like, like I said, it was around $1,000 a month. So we're not exactly getting rich off of that money, but it's some cash flow and every little bit helps. And when your expenses are so low, $1,000 a month, actually that's meaningful. That means something. The key for us is just putting these pieces into place before retirement and that's it. How long before quitting your job did you start? I started my blog, which was my main source of income in 2014. I quit at the end of 2016. So for me, it was a couple of years. You don't necessarily have to start that soon, depending on what you think your income is going to look like. But that was just the right time for me to start that blog. So I had a two-year runway to start developing a little bit income before we actually hit the point of early retirement. Yeah, I actually started... My like first side business when I was still working in 2010, I think it was. I've earned, I think, at least over $300,000 or euros, whatever. A little bit of the same bandwidth as you. You know, been making between $1,000 and $2,000 a month for like a long, long time. And that's, you know, an ideal way to be able to, you know, move away from your job to decide your, what you want to do to create your own freedom instead of being stuck to what everybody else is stuck to. That's right. That's right. And a, a lot of people think of this in terms of, oh, I have to start a business and I have to make a hundred grand. I have to make 500 grand. I want to make a million. And you not only want to replace your full-time income, but you just want to grow. You just want to explode. Just make all this money. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I think that's turning a lot of people off to the concept of early retirement. You don't have to make all of that money, even if you just replace a fraction of what you made in your full-time job. If your lifestyle is low enough, if your expenses are low enough, then you simply don't have to make all of that money. So there's more than one way to do this. You certainly don't have to start this million-dollar business. You don't have to have that as your goal if that's not really what you want to be doing. Just a fraction of your income, I think that adds up um, incredibly quickly. And I think it's very important for people to realize, well, you could call this early retirement, but it's really you're creating freedom for yourself, giving your yourself access to anything you want to do. I have no boss. I can do whatever I want. It's really a nice way to live. Oh, yeah. I mean, early retirement is kind of a misnomer. And the media likes the term early retirement because it like plays well and it elicits this emotional reaction and all that. But really, what I do comes down to financial independence more than 
early retirement. Because yes, I quit my full-time job, but I only did that because I was financially independent and I could work if I choose to, but if I choose not to, then I certainly don't have to work. Because I'm not sitting outside in my rocking chair yelling at the neighbor kids to get off my lawn. First of all, we don't have neighbors right here in the middle of nowhere. But secondly, that's not retirement. I am not traditionally retired. I'm still very busy, but I'm doing the things that I want to be doing, whether I make money from those things or not. How many years before you quit your job did you start your blog? And why did you start with that? Tell us a little bit of of that story of your growth of the blog. Well, I started two years before I quit. I started my blog, my main money blog, which was thinksaveretire.com. I no longer own that blog. I sold that blog. So it's no, no longer associated with me, but that's the blog I started in 2014. And I chose the blog because that's really what I've been doing. I was that high school kid who had a computer in his room designing websites as a teenager. I was that nerd. I was that kid. So that's really what I was used to doing. That's what I was good at doing. And just starting a blog was just very, very easy for me because I enjoyed the technology side of it. I enjoyed the writing side of it. And those two pieces just came together to make blogging a really, really good option for me. And initially, I didn't start blogging to make money. I had no goals or ambitions to make money from it. But just over the years of building this blog up and getting way more followers and page views and hits, the options to make money expanded rapidly like around, I guess, 2016, late 2015, 2016, um, is when I started to get these opportunities to monetize my blog. And And I ultimately did that, but I certainly didn't start my blog with that intention, but it just worked out that way because with a big blog, people want to take advantage of that to some degree. And as long as you have your guard up and make it work for both parties, I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to make a little bit of extra money after you retire. Let's get into a little bit of the details. How did you decide what articles to create and how did you, you know, get traffic to your blog? I just wrote whatever I was thinking about at the time. Initially, it was a very stream of consciousness blog because I was documenting my journey to financial independence and early retirement. So the things that we did to put these pieces into place, like my investments or my saving strategy or the things we bought or how we talked about what we wanted our future to look like and all that stuff, all the juicy details is what I put into my blog. And I posted, I think, two times a week initially. Um, and it just kind of grew from there, but it got to the point where we were really into this groove of saving and, and, and investing. And there wasn't really a lot to write about and to talk about because I've talked about it all before. We're just continuing the process that I've already told you about. So the content strategy morphed from a stream of consciousness kind of thing to more of like a how-to. So I tried to approach the same financial independent early retirement concept from different people's perspectives. And I tried to write specifically to them to tell them how they can start putting these pieces into place. Let's say you don't earn $250,000 a year. Let's say you only earn $80,000 a year or 70 or whatever. What can you do with that income to help set yourself up for the same kind of goals that we were going for? And so I wrote a lot about the same concept, but from a very different perspective. And I think that's really when my traffic started to pick up because I was writing specifically for them rather than just my story. 
And I didn't pay for a lot of advertisements. The traffic was very organic. Just over time, it built and built and built. I was on Twitter some, but honestly, I kind of wasted that opportunity back when I ran that blog. I really wasn't posting all that much, but it was very, very organic growth. It takes a long time when it's organic, like four years, but over time, it definitely builds up into something, something that you can be proud of, I guess I'll, I'll say it that way. What was your main traffic source? Was it the organic search traffic? Yeah, it was organic search traffic through Google was by far my main traffic source. I tried Pinterest, I tried Instagram, I tried some Twitter, and yeah, some of those things added up. I even tried Reddit. Reddit is this beast of an, I mean, if you say the wrong thing, Redditors are going to destroy you. So it takes a very special person to really get good at Reddit. So I tried it for a couple months and said, screw this, I'm done. And then moved on to, I think, Twitter, I guess, at that point. But yeah, I mean, I've tried all these different things. And yeah, it helps some, but really organic search traffic was by far my biggest source of traffic for the blog. What was the first like source of income and how did you increase revenue from your blog? Once I got to a certain point in page views, I think it was 50,000, I got into an ad network. So I started with Mediavine, which is a very popular ad network for many websites. Mediavine places ads on your website. So on like the top bar, the footer, adhesion ad, basically a sticky on the right. And there's some in-content ads too. So all those added up into a pretty good money generator. I'm talking in the neighborhood of usually five to $800 a month. And my page views were between, I don't know, 60 and 80,000 page views a month. So that kind of gives you an idea of page views to income. And I also was building up this email list on the side. And I also monetized the email list with email ads. And that also shored up another, I don't know, two or $300 a month in income from that. So both of those combined were a thousand, maybe a little bit more in some months. I found that during the holidays, advertisement budgets are up. So I made a lot more money during you know October, November, and December than I did January and February and March. But I mean, I mean, it's always going to be a cyclical thing. So it didn't really surprise me. But that was a very interesting thing, interesting phenomenon to experience when you're making maybe $2,000 in, in December. And then January, you're making like 700. It's like, what the hell did I do? I mean, did, is, is it something I said? But no, it's just it's just cyclical ad budgets. That's really all it is. How did you monetize your email list? I used a company. Um, it was an email marketing company. For the life of me, I can't remember what it was. But it was basically just cost per click or cost per action ads that I embedded directly in the email. Sometimes there were images or sometimes it was text or something that I linked. And whenever one of my email subscribers clicked on that link or clicked on that image, would get a kickback for it if they actually signed up. Like for example, people who wanted to run webinars would contract with this email advertising company and then I would grab their ads from them. So whenever somebody signed up for the webinar, for example, they would give me a couple bucks. So lots of different ads that kind of worked that way both graphical as well as text-based. That was a pretty easy way to monetize an email list. Maybe something like Commission Junction where you could subscribe to campaigns from advertisers and you could just say, hey, I want these ads in my email. 
Yeah, it was very similar. It was not commission junction specifically, but it was very similar to that. In fact, some of the ads were so time sensitive that I would write my email a couple days before it was going to be sent out and I would include one or two ads. But then by the time my email was sent, those ads were no longer active. They were no longer paying. The person who started the webinar for whatever killed the ad campaign. So effectively, that was a wasted email because even if they did click, I wasn't going to get anything from it. That was pretty frustrating. I won't lie because I really had to stay on top of what ads were active, what ads weren't. It wasn't a very good advertising system. But when it worked, it worked fairly well for me. You've been on Twitter since 2009. You probably weren't as active back then as you were as you are right now. Tell us a little bit about your your Twitter journey. Yeah, so I created Steve on Speed, which was my Twitter account back in 2009 as a personal account. Did almost nothing with it until about 2019. That's when I sold my blog, Think Save Retire. So I said, well, I can't use the Think Save Retire Twitter account anymore. Might as well just use my personal account and do something with that. So in 2019, I had about 200 followers or so. And as of this recording, I have a little over 24,000 followers now. I mean, some people grow way faster than that, but a lot of people don't. So I'm fairly proud of how this growth happened. It's a very fun journey. In fact, I find social media kind of not necessarily intriguing, but fascinating. That's the word I would use because it's about crafting the right message to the right person at the right time for the right medium. And with Twitter, as we all know, it's limited to 280 characters now, but it was 140. So you really have to make sure to get that message across in a short, you know, using relatively few characters and figuring out what your audience is going to like. That whole journey was really, really fun to figure out. And quite frankly, I'm still learning. I'm still very much learning how all that works. Let's rewind to 2019. You were at 200 followers. How did you see initial traction? How did you find initial traction? I started to follow some of the same people that followed me on Think Save Retire, my my blog. So I wanted to get those people over to my personal account. In fact, before I sold Think Save Retire, I posted a few messages from the Think Save Retire Twitter account. It's like, hey, just in case you're interested, I have a personal account over here. Look over there. Follow me over there. Let's do this. Let's get some more followers over there. So I employed that strategy, kind of cheap, I guess. But I mean, I picked up another 100 or so, I guess, from that. But a lot of what I did initially was commenting, commenting on other tweets from other influencers. I did that all day long sometimes. And over time, I mean, it's a long process, but over time that adds up and you start getting traction. People start seeing your stuff and they start retweeting you. And then it just kind of grows exponentially from that point. I use DMs a lot. So I started establishing relationships with other Twitter accounts. And they know that certainly helped because they'll see your stuff more and you'll see their stuff more and you could help each other out that way. It was a very slow organic growth, but it worked over time. How did you decide what big accounts to comment on to, you know, give value to? A lot of times I would just watch who my followers were following. That's a big strategy I used. And I would take a look at those accounts. And if I thought they had added value to me, I would follow them, start commenting on them. So a lot of it was just kind of observing and figuring out who the big players are, what they're talking about, and how my message might fit in with their message. And it was was a very interesting process because a lot of times... 
these big Twitter accounts will tweet about these completely random off the cuff things. Or sometimes they'll just be like fortune cookie tweets, like some quote from something that you might find in a fortune cookie. It's, it's nothing very insightful, but yet they have a ton of followers, but they don't have a lot of engagement. So there may not be a lot of value there. I'm very sensitive to that now. It's not just on Twitter. It's not just about your follower account. It's about your engagement. It's about how many likes and retweets and comments you get, because that tells me that you're adding value to your followers. And if you're doing that, I want to follow you because the likelihood is you will also add value to me. Running my own Twitter account, I want to do the exact same thing. I don't want to be tweeting into a void, even though I may have 25,000 followers. If nobody's liking my stuff, if nobody's commenting on my stuff, I'm not helping anybody. I'm not adding value to anybody. I want the engagement because that's how I know that I'm doing a good job and I'm writing the message that my followers are getting value out of. So really separating the follower account from the engagement that you're getting, that right there is the key to determining the valuable Twitter accounts and the Twitter accounts that are just doing maybe follow for follow or buying shout outs or buying followers and things like that. Those accounts don't add much value. Looking back at the past two years, can you name a couple of things where you really saw, well, this is really getting me a lot of traction. I need to do more of this. You mentioned the DMs and the commenting. Any other things that you saw that really worked? Yeah, there's a few strategies. If you want followers, I found that personal stories really work best. And I posted a tweet a couple of days ago about my weight loss, I guess, weight loss transition. Back when I was 24 years old, I was really overweight and I looked quite a bit older. But now I'm 39, I've lost way more weight and I'm probably more fit than I ever have been. And I look younger than I am. So that tweet alone pulled in probably six or 700 followers just from one tweet. And I found that that consistency over time, when you post about personal stories, personal achievements, that brings in followers. You can also tweet questions and that's going to get you a lot of engagement. That's going to get you a lot of not necessarily likes and retweets, but comments. And the strategy there is as more people comment, the more you're like greasing the Twitter algorithm in some ways where that person's commenting on you. So therefore, Twitter thinks that person's interested in what you're tweeting about and they will be more likely to see some of your other tweets. Great strategy. I've used that a lot to varying degrees of success. Sometimes I just send out stupid questions and nobody cares. But if I get a really good question in there um, that people really care about, like for example, do you know anybody who has caught COVID? I asked that several months ago, 30,000 likes, like 15,000 comments. Not all of my questions are like that. Believe me, this one just happened to hit. But yeah, if you find that question that people really relate to, and there's like an emotional component behind it, that really, really works. I don't do much platitude because that's not what people follow me for. They're not following me for fortune cookie tweets. They're actually following me for value. So I always like to stick to that. Even if I think a platitude will work, I probably won't post it. Tell me a little bit, why are you on Twitter? Is there like a business model? I know I've seen you on Art of Purpose's Twitter course. Tell us a little bit about your reasoning behind that. When I say this, people sometimes draw the wrong impression, but I started on Twitter to be an influencer. When I say that, I don't mean I want everybody to love me. 
because that's clearly not the case. If you go down through some of the comments, not everybody loves me. When I say influencer, I mean, I want to be a person that actually helps every single person who follows me. That's legitimately what I want to do. And I know a lot of people say that, but with me, it's actually true. I want to influence them in a positive way. That is the main draw behind spending so much time on Twitter. I do have an ebook called Big Money. I almost never advertise it. It's less than 10 bucks. It's the cheapest book, cheapest ebook you'll ever find on Twitter, it seems. Though I get people saying, well, if you have so much money, why are you selling your ebook? You're just out for money. Believe me, if I was out for money, I wouldn't be selling an ebook for $9.97 on Twitter and advertising it once a week. It's not about the money, it's about the influence. But yes, I do understand people just don't value free stuff. If they did, I would probably give my book away for free. They just don't. They're not going to read it. So what I do is I sell it for something cheap. I actually encourage every person who buys it to give my book to somebody else. No fee, no money. I don't care about the money. Give it to somebody else who actually needs it to help spread the word, to help spread the message. That is ultimately what I want. Art of Purpose's Twitter course is an excellent way to really boost your following and think about your tweets in a whole new way and how to do shout outs properly and things like that. So we started to get involved with that. I took the course. It is incredibly helpful. Like I said before, Twitter is very fascinating. You really have to think about communication in a whole new way. And once you start putting those pieces into place, it gets a little bit easier, but it's still, I mean, at times it's still very frustrating. One of the things you do advertise a bit more is your weekly newsletter. Why do you do that? And then what's your funnel behind that? I use Hype Fury as my Twitter scheduling tool. And one of my favorite features is the ability to auto comment after a certain number of likes. So I've set up my profile to auto comment a tweet about my newsletter after I get 25 likes on any tweet that was sent through Hype Fury. And that has worked very, very well for me because I want to build the email list because it's another way for me to add influence and value to people straight in their inbox. Now, within my email list, I do advertise my book, Big Money, a few times throughout the emails. I probably have, I don't know, 40 or 50 emails that people are getting in my email list. And I probably advertise my book, I don't know, seven or eight times, maybe 10 times, something like that. I don't know. So it's not just geared around the book, but it's a component of what I talk about. And it's just another way for me to take a tweet that I know needs to be short and sweet. Otherwise, it's not going to perform on Twitter. No one's going to care about it. But it's to take that same concept of a tweet and expand into essentially what amounts to a mini blog post that people get straight to their inbox. And that I found adds a lot of value. It keeps people engaged. It keeps people thinking about the concept of money and financial independence and making the best decisions for themselves um, straight in their inbox. So that's why I, I advertise my email list so much because I really want to build that, that up so people start getting the message every single morning when they wake up. It's right there waiting for you. A lot of people struggle with inspiration. They don't know what to tweet about. They also struggle with how am I going to construct this tweet? Run us a little bit through how you do that. I get this question a lot and I like to encourage people, especially when you don't really know where to take your Twitter account. You don't know what to tweet about. Very, very, very common concern. 
So what I like to encourage people to do very simply is to build the Twitter account that you always wanted to follow. And that is exactly what I did. I didn't want to follow platitude accounts. But then again, I also didn't want to follow these deep investment accounts where you're talking about stock symbols and yields. And I don't want to follow that either. I wanted something in between. And I found that happy medium. I am tweeting exactly what I wanted to hear a couple of years ago when I was going through this whole process. So that is how I have directed, I guess, my Twitter account. And I always have that in the back of my head. What is going to resonate with me? Because my followers follow me for a reason. So if something resonates with me, guess what? It's probably going to resonate with them. So that is how I come up with the overall concept and design of my tweets. What I like, they are probably going to like. Otherwise, they would not be following me. And in terms of exactly what to tweet about, I'd like to take a look through my Twitter timeline, only follow accounts that add value. If accounts are negative or they just don't tweet about what you're interested in, unfollow those accounts liberally. Highly curate your timeline because that's going to keep you very focused on exactly the content that resonates with you. And that's where all these ideas start. Just run through your Twitter timeline. If you're following, say, 100 people and you run through that timeline, you're going to find a lot of value in those 100 tweets because those accounts are curated. If you follow, I don't know, 10,000 people, you're going to have all these different tweets from all these different subjects. And some of them are going to be negative. Some of them are going to be completely off topic. That's not how you get inspiration. So I go through my highly curated Twitter timeline, look at some of these tweets that people are tweeting, and I get ideas every single day where every morning I could sit down and write 10 or 20 pop-in tweets just because of what I see on my timeline. That is a huge recommendation that I would highly encourage people to follow. Unfollow people who don't add value, highly curate your timeline, build a Twitter account that you want to follow. And over time, that is going to add up into something amazing. If you want to run an Anon account, you know, you can get away with tweeting platitudes. A lot of those accounts are in engagement groups. And I am oftentimes amazed by the amount of engagement they get. But that's purely because they are in, in engagement groups and just retweet each other. And I think if you want to be one of the dudes, one of the guys, and you just want to share value, then yeah, you have to stay a little bit away from those platitudes and just share value. Tweet maybe a little bit less, but yeah, share personal stories and make people want to follow the person instead of just a tweet. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And early on in your Twitter career, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, but early on when you don't have a lot of followers yet, focus on commenting because that's how you're going to get people to see your tweets. Tweet maybe two or three times a day, maybe until you start getting this following, then tweet a little bit more so people see your tweets. But if nobody's following you, you could have these epic tweets, but then no one's going to see them because you don't have any followers. So instead, take those epic tweets and use those tweets as high value comments to other high profile Twitter accounts. And that is how you're going to get people on your profile. So they click over to your profile. They see a really cool thumbnail. They see a really cool background. They see a bio that instantly connects with them and they're going to click that 
follow button. So that's really the other element of this, your profile, your bio, making your personal brand something that people want to follow. If you don't have a thumbnail, what, so you have the Easter egg, the default Twitter thumbnail, I can guarantee you you're not going to grow. Guarantee you you are not going to grow. You need something that people can look at so they know that you've spent a little time to design your account and you tell people what they're going to find. You tell people how you add value in your bio that's going to encourage people to click that subscribe button, or I guess it's the follow button. What would you tell other people who would like to spread value on you know, financial independence, early retirement? What would you say to new accounts in that space? How would you go about growing your account? To grow a money account, I mean, there's a lot of money accounts out there, but quite frankly, there's not a lot of good competition. I'm just going to say it because a lot of money accounts out there don't really talk about money. And that really goes back to what I said earlier, building the account you wanted to follow. I don't want to follow money bloggers who are just complaining about the system or complaining about this or posting pictures of their dinner. I, that doesn't add value to me. It's not just a conversation. So I think if you want to build a money account, first, you have to decide what kind of money account you're going to build. Are you talking about early retirement? Are you talking about financial independence? Are you talking about investing? Are you talking about saving or some combination of that? Whatever that happens to look like, you really have to understand what that is first and then really hit on that niche with every single tweet, or at least 80% of your tweets. You don't necessarily need to be a robot. Like at night, for example, I like to tweet out something that doesn't really have much to do with money. It could be just like an observation or a lifestyle tweet. Like at night, people aren't looking for this hard-hitting money investment kind of talk. I generally save that more for the morning and the evening. I'm a little bit more flexible and liberal with what I talk about. But if you understand what your niche is going to be and really hit on that, stay consistent with it, that is going to be your best chance of building a really helpful, influential money account. Because like I said, there are a lot of money bloggers out there. There's a lot of people with money Twitter accounts, but your competition is quite frankly not that great because most of them don't talk about money. So don't be that kind of account. Actually talk about money if you want to grow a money account. How would they get like a list of big accounts that they can comment on and share their value on? How would they go about that and what would they do? One thing that I like to encourage people to do is find higher profile money accounts, whoever that happens to be, whether I mean, it could be Mr. Money Mustache or heck, it could, it could be me and look at who they follow and then start following some of those accounts. So it's like a, like a third degree connection where you're following people who might follow you. And then that's how you really come across some of these bigger accounts that add value. Because if an account adds value for you, the accounts that they are following probably will also add value for you. And that's how you get some of your bigger Twitter accounts. That, that, that's how you identify them, figure out who they are, follow them. And that's how you can start to comment on some of the high profile, high value Twitter accounts to get some eyes onto your content as well. So take a look at the followers of your followers for a good, I guess, first step, first pass for accounts that you should be following. And then the more you engage on Twitter, the more you use it, the more you see, you'll start to really see who you should be following and who might be a wasted follow. Then you could always unfollow those accounts. That goes back to the curating your timeline. So, Steve, what do people need to do in order for you to retweet them? <laughs> for me to retweet you, 
comments are great. I love comments and I like almost every comment. Sometimes I don't have time to like them all. But if you add a very, very, very insightful comment from an angle that I just haven't thought about before, I will probably retweet you. But if you retweet me with a comment of your own, that's also very insightful. So a quote retweet, not just a straight retweet. I will most likely retweet that as well because you're doing me a favor by putting me in front of your audience. So I generally like to return the favor by retweeting you. Now, that doesn't always happen. You have to add some value, a little bit more insight to the tweet that I sent, but that's definitely going to increase the chances of me retweeting you. Thank you, Steve. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? You could find me, uh, well, on Twitter at Steve on Speed. I also have a website at steveadcock.us. That's my blog, but I spend the vast majority of my time right here on Twitter. Cool, man. Thank you very much. All right. You got it. Thanks. Appreciate your time. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week.